You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Wirt and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Last week's episode was a conversation with co-host Jessie Lee about her time with a third-party quality inspection company. This week's episode is a continuation of that conversation, this time focusing on her second stop along the fashion supply chain when she worked in-house for a brand as a merchandising manager. She paints us a picture of the delicate equilibrium merchandisers must strike, caught between designers seeking last-minute changes, factories fed up with those last-minute changes, and the financial pressure to negotiate lower and lower buying prices from factories year on year. Too often, this balancing act results in unsustainable outcomes for all involved. Jessie contrasts this more typical picture with her own experience, where building relationships founded on trust took priority and resulted in better outcomes for all involved. We explore the enabling conditions for trust, like having the right internal structures within brands, and the immense potential of merchandising teams for opening up communication between factories and brands. We also explore subcontracting. Jessie's experience working for a factory willing to talk openly about its subcontracting practices is pretty unusual, and a direct consequence of the relationship her team built up with the facility. She shares how this led to better outcomes for everyone, from quality to on-time delivery to social compliance. We wrap up the conversation with some open-ended musings on the fundamental tension between risk and trust. As sustainability advocates and as an industry, how can we shift from a culture obsessed with minimizing risk, whether financial, reputational, or otherwise, to one focused on systems that give trust the best chances of success? So, Jesse, you experienced a lot of conflict while you were working for a third-party inspection company, as we detailed in our last episode. So tell us a little bit about your decision then to move on to a brand. So that all this uh, conflict make me think maybe work on the other side, on a higher position of supply chain, let's say on the brand side, could be easier or could be much more peaceful less conflict, mm. let's say. So when I had the chance, I moved to Shanghai, worked for a French group. At that time, mm -hmm. they own five garment uh, brands, uh, probably more today. So at that time, the whole buying office, the whole buying function is, uh, sorry, it was in France. So we were- Can you just explain a little bit for listeners who might not know, what's a buying office? Mm, okay. Buying office is uh, <laughs> interesting. Buying office is... Uh, so I, I might just briefly explain the whole process. It might okay. help for the later context too. Okay. So, um, so first, brands would have a designer team or would have a buying team, depends on the setting. They will estimate the trends of the market and they then they will quickly sales department or Finance department depends. Sales department would quickly uh, worked out a budget of the next season. Uh, then the buyers or designers or buyers and the designers will take the figure of the budget, worked out how many connections or how many styles they need to prepare to fulfill the, the shops. And then from mm -hmm. there, they can 
performed the sales forecast, they can realize, yeah, carry out the sales forecast. So the buyers and designers will worked on how many connections, how many styles, and then break it into sizes and colors. And then the, so the buyers and designers will focusing on collections and styles development. They don't focus on purchasing, the actual purchasing, the actual communication with the production side. So, factories. Yes, factories. So buyers and uh, designers, yeah, we are past this uh, planning, this purchasing plan to merchandising team. And that is the role I am, I was going to play as at the moment. I was a merchandising manager in China, in Shanghai to purchase, to do the communication with factories to make sure factories can produce rose goods on time with the quality grade and with、mm. the cost grade. So that is the role of merchandising team. Basically, we are purchasing. We are the bridge between. So you're a representative、clients. of the brand effectively. Yes. To- To coordinate and communicate with suppliers, with factories about what needs to be produced, how many need to be produced, when they need to be produced, and、uh, to make sure that they are capable from a quality perspective to actually produce it. Yes. Is that accurate? Yes, that's accurate. And the factories here mentioned are not the brand's own factories, are、uh, independent factories. So are our、right. suppliers. Yeah. So, right. So yeah, and actually, that's a really important thing to 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 distinguish because I think, you know, people who haven't maybe spent a lot of time thinking about the fashion industry don't really realize that that the companies who are making these clothes are not owned by the brands. Themselves, so the brands need a merchandising team that sits in the middle that basically acts as the liaison. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Like a bridge, functioning like a bridge, like so, a bridge. Yeah, yeah. So when I accepted this offer, I was quite happy. I was thinking, "Ha!、Huh, now I'm moving to the higher part of the food chain." Let's say, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say how brands work. So I don't、mm-hmm. have to get involved in those conflicts anymore. The conflicts between factories, inspection companies, and brands. I'm I'm going to work. Uh, standing out as representing brands, so so I accepted the offer and I started work. And very quickly, I found out、uh, it's、um, it's it's a、uh, it's not better. Let's say it's、uh, different. It's just a different. So as a merchandising team, we actually receive pressure from both sides. We have great pressure from buying buyers, buyers and designers of the brands, and we have great pressure also from our、uh, our partners. Yes. The suppliers, the people, the people producing your goods. Yes, exactly. So the pressure from the buyer and the designer's side are mostly on timing, on timing because you see they receive, they work on the sales forecast, and the sales forecast related to the estimation or related to the trend reports. Let's say. Yeah, it's so, like let's say it's a. You could explain it, I think, very simply by saying. It's an estimate of how many pieces,、uh, a particular of a particular style, a brand expects to sell, right? Yes, and they expect it to sell at this price to gain that much profits. So、right. it's all projection into future. So you can understand once they finished, they pass to us. We started to. Uh, we started the next process, and by then, if they realize、uh, maybe they are too 
optimistic or maybe they are too pessimistic or maybe they want some more modifications in terms of good sales and so on and so on. So they would like to change the styles. They have strong motivation to do so. But to change the styles or to change the forecast or both? Sometimes could be both. Sometimes you mean could like be if, both. let's say the t-shirt was blue and then they decide they want to make it red. Is that what you mean? That is quite rare. That is very rare. It's more often like they make it quite clear they want 2,000 pieces of pants or they want 20,000 of pants breaking into five colors, something like this. Mm-hmm. And then they suddenly realize, ah, no, actually, one color may be not that good for sales. Then they might want to either reduce the colors, which is a big mm-hmm. thing, because by then the fabric is probably dyed. Purchased or, and dyed, yeah. Yes, or better maybe they think oh we are too pessimistic we want to increase the colors which is in uh, which increase the quantity which is a good news for factories however once you miss the time window it's quite tricky to increase quantity it means you're right you ha- you've already ordered all of your materials i mean if you have five colors you've ordered five colors of the fabric from your fabric mill and suddenly to add another one sure you can do it but you can't i mean it's very difficult to get it out then at the same time as all the other ones Yes, because all the machines or people are all occupied by the already-made planning. Yes, they are booked. And then you don't want to ship out four colors first and ship out one color after. You would like to have all the pants ready at the same time. Yeah, and I think it's important to highlight that why a factory wouldn't want to do that. Why wouldn't you want to send ship out four four colors first and one one color later i mean it would significantly increase your logistics costs right yeah never mind the extra environmental cost of doing extra shipments yeah and yes it's also for instance you have some urgent orders you want to cancel some booking uh, make some new booking then you have extra cost to the fabric meals and maybe extra cost to the i don't know container and so on each loop the working load is increased when the working load increased it means your labor cost the time cost everything is also increased so increasing the quantity or decreasing the quantity is actually actually means the same thing to the factories. So they don't really like it. They like it, but they like to increase quantity, but depends on when they receive the news. Right. So this but is... changes, changes cost, changes, changes are hard work. Yeah, changes are hard <laughs> work. You can put it that way. <laughs> yes. I, under, I totally understand as uh, the... Uh, as part of the company, I totally understand we need to be flexible so that we can adapt the markets much better because we have shops, we have our own shops, and we have sales to consider. Yes, we need to be flexible. However, that's the consequences to the um, to the lower side of the supply chain. The consequences pass down. When mm-hmm. it arrives at factories, it might increase lots of cost and lots of pressure, let's say. So mm-hmm. this is the first pressure we have from uh, designers and the buyers. They, let's say, almost uh, over 50% of the time, they want to change it after we told them, sorry, uh, we cannot change it. Product is approved. It's in production. It's yes. cut off. It's passed, right? Usually we have, we set up a very clear rules for everyone. So usually we will remind them once, twice, three times or four times to tell them, hey, next week is really the deadline. If you want any changes, please do tell us before next week. But mm. it, it didn't happen like that. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said the risk is is passed down the supply chain because the drive for these last minute changes, that's where that 
that's where that comes from, right? There, are, There's an unstable market demand. We don't know what's going to sell, what's going to be popular. And so as we get more information about that, then we request last minute changes to products and to production to be able to adapt better to what the market has indicated it might want. And it's really the factory that bears the consequences of that. It's interesting, too, because it makes me reflect like, you know, as a factory manager myself, was basically trying to, it was at times very difficult for me within the own team, the own like factory management team that I, for which I was responsible to create like cohesion um, because, because all of these last minute requests from our customers to do, you know, for a small change here or a small change there, once it was, you know, already been released to the production floor, uh, caused a lot of stress on the system. And, you know, within my own team would cause people to, to get really angry with each other and to blame each other. Um, and so it was really hard to like, you know, for example, between the production team and the product development team, the production team would say, why did you allow the customer to make this change? You know, it's causing us all yeah. kinds of headaches on the production floor. And now they said they want this change, but actually it's not even clear what that means because we don't have this information and that information. Yes. And how are we supposed to do it? Right. Yeah. And that that created a lot of friction within our factory and within our management team that for me as the sort of leader trying to coordinate all these moving pieces was often very difficult to manage and to keep my team basically working as a team you know yeah yeah it's at the beginning at the beginning of the loop it just sounds a very small change i want to increase i want to add one more color or i want to change mm. the thread color or something like that but in the end mm. when it passed to a factory it can cause lots of conflicts it can, as you mm -hmm. described, it can cause internal conflicts between production team and the communication side, no matter it's which PD ultimately or no matter don't it's... serve the brand, right? Like, yes, it's in those, I mean, I can guarantee you, like when, as in in the factory that I managed, that the times when we had the biggest quality issues and the biggest, the largest number of defects was when, against our better judgment, we accepted last minute changes which then caused all kinds of chaos on the production floor and all kinds of friction in terms of internal relationships within within our team that basically led to outcomes which didn't really uh, benefit anyone. In this situation, everyone would be highly stressed because you have a deadline, you have a boat or a flat to catch up with. Then you cannot be, of course, you are stressed. Then many things could happen. Oh, this is more mistakes or those small things changes so the bigger maybe lesson to draw from this too is or or the point to articulate is i think there's a lot of pressure to be adaptable to be flexible and while those are good things i think there also needs to be a recognition of what goes into making a small change possible and how actually a small change is usually a big thing and then sort of a more let's say, balanced decision-making process or a way to have a conversation about whether this is worth it. And I give an example. As a factory manager, I would have loved to be able to discuss with my customer and say, like, we can do this, but there's pretty high chance that it's going to go wrong. Is, is it that important to you that 
you want to go ahead? And maybe they say yes, and maybe they say no. But I, as a factory manager, could never have had an open conversation with my customer about that because I, I would have feared basically being perceived as unsupportive or unwilling to make something happen for them and that then I was going to lose the order as a result. Yeah, you probably will be marked as uh, not cooperative enough. So next season, right. they probably will uh, put you into another list of suppliers. Right. When that urgent extreme circumstance becomes the normal, well, then it's just like you're sprinting all the time. And at a certain point, you're exhausted. Yeah. If actually, if the communication can be opened for both sides, brand sides and the factory sides, then uh, the work can be done much easier and smoother. The results are usually better. For instance, if yeah. brands could uh, be more open to, to inform their own planning, let's say, or schedule, then the factory actually can give lots of good and valuable advices about when needs to prepare which part. Or if I had a way of gauging, how important is this change to a brand? Yeah. Yes. Right? Is this a top priority or is it a less of a priority? Because I don't get that information. Every change request that I get has to be treated equally when in fact, maybe that's not really true. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And yeah, sometimes and I can't ask because like you said, I'll be, I'll be marked as sort of like a difficult, a difficult <laughs> customer, right? Yeah. Or a difficult supplier. Sorry. That is so. uh, something we did at that moment as a merchandising team from the brand side. So this is the pressure we, one pressure we receive is uh, last minute changes. And I think the nice way to just wrap up this conversation on last minute changes, I think is to connect it back directly to sustainability because our listeners might be wondering, okay, so we have a lot of last minute changes and this is clearly not a good thing for the factories, but what does that really have to do with sustainability? And what I would say to those listeners is that this system creates a lot of extra waste. It creates a lot of extra quality defects and brands are very particular about where their logos are allowed to end up. There's a lot of checks in place to avoid counterfeits uh, or to avoid, let's say, defects ending up on local markets. Uh, brands are very protective of their, of their, of their brand. And so these defects have to be incinerated or go to landfill. And on the other hand, the other consequence of these last minute, um, last minute requests and last minute changes too, is the extra burden that it places on capacity, which Jesse um, articulated so clearly. And the question ultimately becomes also how will factories resolve that? And and it creates incentives for cutting corners, whether at the factory level, who is suddenly trying to deal with a lot of extra work and might need extra people to do that or might need extra overtime to get the order out on time, or even at the raw material supplier level, who might also be incentivized to cut corners. Okay, so the second pressure you faced, Jesse. And the second mm. pressure is even bigger, which is uh, negotiating the price, negotiating the cost, let's say. So mm. for brands, it's buying price. Yeah. So mm. every season we have to negotiate, uh, beginning of the season, we need to negotiate the buying price of um, of old products we're going to purchase. And that gives us a lot of pressure as uh, I can explain this way. Um so for a brand, mm. they believe business needs to, if, if a business runs very well, it has some growth every year. And that is, uh, represented as, uh, lower cost and 
higher price is not very possible, but a lower cost it should be possible. So uh, at the beginning of every season, we would receive the budget or receive the target, which is always lowered. Our target buying prices is always lower than the last season, which give, give us lots of pressure because in the past uh, 10 years, let's say, or even longer, the labor cost or the material cost of China is increasing all the time. Increasing, right. Yes, so you have the material cost and the labor cost increasing, where at the same time, for factories, their selling price is decreased or compressed mm-hmm. by merchandising team or the by buying team or the by brands, then it's, it's very difficult. So it gives us lots of negotiation pressure. And it's worth just pointing out quickly how directly tied this is to sustainability too, because if your wages are going up and your labor costs are going up, and yet the pressure that you're putting on factories to is to supply at a cheaper cost, I mean, again, another incentive to cut corners. And mm-hmm. that, uh, that I, I would say, I, I will have to say related to the policies set up in, inside of the brands, for instance, mm-hmm. in that group. Uh, the bonus of uh, buyers and designers are directly linked to the sales performance. Uh, how much sales figures they performed, they achieved, is directly linked to their their own bonus or even their maybe some salaries or maybe their own performance evaluations. So in this case, mm. buyers and designers, they have to they have to uh, negotiate uh, good buying prices mm-hmm. for for the sales team. Mm. So those are the two pressures we had uh, from the buyer side, from the brand side. Right. And we haven't even gotten to the pressure from the factory yet. <laughs> yeah, pressure from the factory side. Oh, uh, pressure from factory side. Actually, if we can have a good communication with factories, if we could establish a trust uh, connection with them, a lot of things would be easier. For instance, after, I mean, after one year or sometimes we eventually establish a quite uh, smooth communication with factories. They could inform us sometimes in advance, like they are fully booked now. So if we have some urgent orders, we better either tell them now, either negotiate with buyers. They could give us a lot of very valuable advices. So mm. with those advices, we are able to make the work easier to cope with last-minute changes and to cope with the pressure from uh, lowered prices. For instance, they would uh, tell us, um, if you can change this material, uh, it, it mm-hmm. looks both materials will look more or less the same. However, the cost will be quite different. Will be different. Or they will yeah. advise us to change the workmanship or change the cutting or change the sewing or do something eventually. The, it doesn't influence the outlook, but it will bring down the costs. That brings uh, interesting. That opens an interesting chapter of understanding <laughs> at which moment the power, let's say, the power shifting between brands and factories. So, for instance, mm. at which moment factory factories are on a much stronger position than brands? At which mm. moment? So, in my eyes, that is the moment when brands just placed order and factories didn't start pro- produce yet. And that is mm. probably the only moment a factory has a stronger position. Why? Um, when a brand placed order, it means they didn't place order. They didn't book another factory. So they mm. didn't book another factory. If this factory reject to produce, then 
the brands miss the time, miss the some time so of production. So it means the goods, no matter who produce, will be late in the shops. So it means in markets, this brand will lose some uh, sales opportunities. So mm. when brands just place the order, that is the moment brands are exposed in a more vulnerable position, situation and right. factories are on a stronger positions because factory didn't upfront a lot of cost. Let's say factories didn't invest, invest more than they can afford yet. So that is right. the moment the factories are in a stronger position. Then once the production started, factory gradually, unfortunately, moved to a weaker position and the brands, day by day, brands gain a much stronger position. So when the goods, when everything finished, waiting for the inspection report, that is the moment the factory are in a very weak position and the brands are in a much stronger position. Think about it. Right. Factory already produced everything. What can they do if they don't sell to this customer? Other customers will mm. not take, I mean, other brands will not take products from this brand, right? So back to the topic, what's the motiva uh, motivation of the suppliers to mm -hmm. share all this information with the uh, brand purchasing team? Um, well, they don't have to, in fact. And sometimes hiding those information might benefit them. I'll give you an example. Imagine right now, there is one factory received two orders from two different customers, two different brands. But two orders were not secured, or one order is secured, the other one not. The factories might want to pick up one order, but uh, reject the other order. So, of course, the factory wants to secure one order first to make sure they mm -hmm. have one order, then they will say what they do with the second order. So in this case, mm -hmm. hiding the information to say, we might be fully booked is mm -hmm. actually good for the to the suppliers. It totally depends on the communication they have with the two brands. Mm -hmm. So as a merchandising team, if we have good connection with uh, factories, if we have trust in between, the factories might directly tell us we probably will be fully booked you might want to right. place order to other factories, not to us, not wait. So for how do you earn that trust though? We, <laughs> I think probably because this merchandising team is located in China. So mm. we know the situation much better or we receive information much faster than the brands, than the buyers and the, and, the, and the designers. And we worked with factories very closely. So we understand their, their positions. We understand their requirements challenges. or their challenges. Yeah. Yes. So sometimes we, we would or we have to advocate uh, their interest in front of buyers and designers. For instance, mm. if they push some changes or some workmanship, which is not doable within that cost, then we have to act out. It's also our responsibilities to tell them what is possible in production site and what is not possible. So by doing so, by, how to say, by uh, act out, based on reasons, not exactly based on positions. I think that's the reason we gain the trust of llama suppliers. So for example, like if they say, I mean, one way you can gain trust is by taking the time, you know, when they give you feedback about, okay, something is possible or something is not possible, to take the under time to understand why and also to research it, to validate it, to make sure that, you know, what they're telling you is 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 true. 
And then basically being in a, a quite a strong position to advocate on their behalf with uh, people like your colleagues within the brand, right? Yes, yes. I think, yeah. First thing, very important is our attitudes. We didn't see suppliers or factories as uh, as liabilities, as you said, or as uh, <laughs> tricky players, let's say. We yeah. really see factories as our partners, as uh, our mm. very valuable customers, because we really mm. rely on them to finish production on time and with good qualities. So this is the first mm. thing. Our attitude is very clear. We, we see them as... do you think as, that that's yeah. unique to you? Or do you think that most merchandising teams, that this is true of many merchandising teams across the fashion industry? It's it's not very true. Unfortunately, it's not a general fact, actually. Uh, mm. Lots of merchandising team, if uh, they are in the same company as brands, they usually take positions over reasons. So they use positions, uh, how to say, they, right. they, were, they use, they use their position, like their action is based on their position within the supply chain rather than based on, uh, let's say a general interest reasonable. For yes. Yeah. Reasonable or a general interest for everyone. After all, on the final point, both brands and the factories want to ship out goods at, uh, with a good quality. So, so yes. So. I can't say everyone act like that, but uh, many merchandising teams, they act uh, from their positions. They see themselves as representative of brands. So, they... And why do you think your team was different? It's a very good question. <laughs> Can I say because we are good people? <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, it, I think leadership is an important part of the picture, right? And the tone that leadership sets... But also, I'm curious if, if, oh, you know, I think um, I know, I think I know now. Mm. Okay. So, uh, no. Okay. I, I remember the reason. Uh, What's it's, that? It's because of the manager of representative office at that time. Um, mm. I didn't realize that because, uh, this representative office manager is very special. He, so he the manager of the, of the, the, the brand that you were working for, the manager basically, if the, I mean, they have these representative office, cl offices closer to the sites of production. And then there's a manager for that office. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have to brief a little bit because the setting might be not general for every brand. So mm. the title of the office is a representative office. However, uh, in terms of operation, it's quite powerful and uh, independent from big part of the organization chart. So we mm. are fully responsible for all the products purchased and produced in China. So the mm. title, though the title is just a representative office manager, the position or the responsibilities are much bigger than that. You can consider mm. it's, uh, it's like CEO of an independent company at that moment. Mm. So mm. I would say the company culture is very different. The office culture is uh, very different. So since the beginning, when he set up the merchandising team and when he set up the term of the complication, he made it very clear. He wishes mm. we, he wants to have a flat organization. It means mm. there are not lots of authority levels, so flat internally, and he wants a equal partnership with all the factories. So in this way, we could have a much easier, much more efficient and much more effective complications. So we don't have to argue 
for several days on something quite small. So in this way, everything can work much better, much faster. So the culture is set up in this way. So when we start to set up the team, when we select people or interview candidates, we also focusing on the culture or building up mm. the team spirit in this way. So in the end, we could have a smoother communication. I would say it's because the attitude at the beginning and the attitude reason back to the culture we set up. Mm. So let's that's really interesting. And that's a really, I think, clear and concrete example of a structural change that you could make within a brand um, in terms of how you structure these uh, representative offices and also what kind of people you put in charge of them and, and sort of the incentives and incentive schemes that you set up that sort of create a culture that's more conducive to equal partnership. But you could change nothing else and only change that, and it would already have a big impact. Yes, yes. So the setting of uh, context or the setting of the environment is very important. Like you said, the mm. structural change, it can decide many, many things after. We try to copy exactly the same way of communication with our own uh with our colleagues, let's say with our, our buyers and designers. However, it's, uh, it was really difficult because as, as mm. I explained before, their bonus or their performance are bounded with the sales figures and the sales figures bounded with the market, uh, situation. So mm. in this case, they, they have to often do something like last minute changes or, uh, decrease buying prices every season, even if it's not mm -hmm. reasonable. You see, mm. so that's, that's why we cannot copy the exactly same thing inside of the mm. company as they see something mm. out of our control. But we managed to have a smoother communication with factories. Um, I should give an example to explain the benefits of the trust communication. Um, mm. we have compliance requirements, not mm -hmm. exactly as strict as some certificates, but we also have quite good compliance, uh, requirement. And for our listeners who might not know, compliance here refers to social compliance, which is a term we use to refer to how well a factory does in terms of honoring its commitment to its employees and to its workers and providing a safe and healthy working environment where employees are treated well. And mm -hmm. one of the requirements is uh, the supplier signed contract with us should not outsource production to other factories. And the reason why brands might not want their factories to outsource to other factories is because it makes monitoring social compliance a lot harder. Contractually, the agreement remains between the factory on record and the brand. And if that factory on record decides to give part of the work to a third entity, well, the brand has no oversight of that. That third entity is effectively invisible. So how can a brand control or monitor social compliance in those facilities? In terms, in the situations that uh, material costs and labor costs increase every year quite dramatically, yet the selling price of factories uh, decreased every season also dramatically. Sometimes they, and also peak season comes, so sometimes they have no choices. They outsource production to smaller factories, let's say. Yeah, and, and I think it's worth also explaining that even if all of this wasn't happening, even if if costs weren't increasing and prices weren't decreasing, there's still a reason why factories might want to outsource, and that is an unstable demand. I think the simplest way to explain it is consumers, people who are buying clothes, 
sometimes want more clothes and sometimes want less clothes. You know, for example, Christmas time is a peak shopping season for consumers and people maybe buy more clothes then than they do in February. And so when you're dealing with fluctuating demand and fluctuating markets, you know, you need to be able to produce uh, based on market demand. And, you know, as a factory manager, you have a couple of options for doing that. You can choose to have a huge pool of people on your permanent on permanent contracts as part of your staff and have them sitting idle for part for the times that you don't need them. But the margins in the in the fashion industry don't really allow for that. Um, and you would go out of business, I think, if that's how you how you tried to cope with that fluctuating demand, right? The other option that you have for coping with that or for dealing with those fluctuations are, uh, you know, short term contracts. So hiring people on contracts which are not permanent, or as uh, subcontracting. So working with partners who have the ability to basically uh, be like an overflow facility when you are in your when you're in your busy periods. Yes. You know, yeah. it's just a fact of life that sometimes consumers buy more and sometimes they buy less. And okay, to a certain extent as a factory, you can do things to try and balance. If you have longer lead times, you can do things to try and smooth out your production so that you do more. You know, you produce extra inventory in the periods when you're less busy that you can sell during the peak seasons. But even then, I mean, it's highly unlikely as a factory that you could perfectly smooth out your production so that, you know, every month you produce the same number of pieces. So factories, they have their reasons, and I have to say very reasonable, to outsource production, sometimes partly, sometimes uh, quite a lot, to, yeah, flee to another factory. And usually factories, they will hide this uh, information or hide this effect to purchasing or merchandising team for their own good, Mm. of course. So even, even... So this is an open secret in the industry. Outsourcing is really the open secret in the industry. They still want to hide it, which is very reasonable. Well, and I think it speaks, it's an open secret and it speaks to something really pretty fundamental, right? Which is that brands historically did do their own manufacturing, right? And struggled with exactly this issue, which is how do you balance an unstable demand and all of the resources, the staff that you need to have on hand in order to to to, to be able to cope with an, an unstable demand? And how did brands solve that problem? Well, you know, with the advance of improvements in communication technology and logistics, it suddenly became possible to do production elsewhere, where not only were wages cheaper, and I think usually the emphasis is put on cheaper wages, but for me, that's only part of the story. But also, you can basically outsource that risk and the risk of those costs to someone else. So the fact that we have a brand and a supplier who are not part of the same company is because, I mean, one of the reasons why we have that is because of an unstable demand and a desire to outsource the risk of those costs, right? And so then suddenly when we talk about sustainability, we come in with permanent contracts and, you know, all of those things are really important for protecting workers' rights. But I think it's almost like we have to acknowledge the original sin. And we've, 
you, you know what I mean? And how how the the fact that we have this kind of setup in the first place is pretty directly tied to this problem, right? And and the fact that that the brands have outsourced it to somebody else doesn't mean it's gone away. Yeah, no, it's not just passed uh, down the chain. Passed to someone else. Yes, and <laughs> accumulated somewhere lower the supply chain, lower part of the supply right. chain. Yeah. So factories, of course, have very good reasons to hide the fact. However, it increases the risks on the purchasing side, so on the merchandising mm-hmm. team. For instance, if they don't tell us they actually outsource production to another place, then we might uh, miss the time to check the goods on time. So mm. that we might miss the time window to do something to know the truth of the of the product quality. So for us, we have very good reasons to control the situation to at least acknowledge where exactly those goods are produced, so that we can mm. send out our own quality people or even ourselves to go to the site to really say it, to know exactly which stage those those productions are. Like already, right, and that the quality is good, and that you know. yes, and understand the conflicts or the challenges a factory is facing. So, if there is something we can help, we will. For instance, they might need us to call the third party inspection company to come earlier, or we might need to arrange the to book the inspection company later. After all, they cannot mm. book inspection company only us, only we can. So, those mm. kind of communication or information sharing can benefit both sides, but can also just uh, harm. The suppliers harm the factories. Mm. It depends on our attitude or our positions. So after um, after a few, I think two or three seasons, we finally have a smoother relationship with some suppliers, not all the suppliers. So one day, the supplier just told us very frankly, saying we were too busy recently, and we have to have much more orders than last year to to make some benefits. So we outsourced to make your- some money to stay alive. To yeah, to stay on the table, to not get yeah. out of the, not get kicked yeah. out. So, uh, so they told us that uh, they outsourced our production to another smaller factory, and on the top of that, they even agreed to show us that factory. So eventually, our merchandisers went to the original plan is our merchandiser will go to this supplier to check our goods, but eventually this supplier showed us the outsourced uh, production, outsourced factory. So we went there. We are able to see. We were able to see the real situation of the production. That mm-hmm. really helps mm-hmm. a lot. So now we have the real information. We can feed back to the buyers or suppliers to tell them if it's still possible to add one more color or it's not possible or anyway you are late because of the last minute change but anyway don't worry Mm. we can give you a schedule plan shipping schedule plan which date you might have how many quantities in your shops and so on Mm. so this kind of cooperation really benefits not just uh, let's say merchandising team but also the shops and the buyers. And what happened when you went to see that subcontractor? I mean, were you obligated as a merchandiser to disclose it to the compliance team that this factory was subcontracting or how did that work? It works usually more like, um, it, it's very you know, did, flexible. Yeah. Sorry. Did you have like a sustainability department that you had to report to that this factory was subcontracting or did the sustainability department have to go out and do a compliance audit or, you know, like, Let's, how does... Uh, 
that how is, does that work? That is very interesting uh, because that is the setting of the of a brand usually. Compliance uh, department or sustainable team, their responsibility is to select uh, or approve a groups of suppliers who are compliant. Mm-hmm. And after mm-hmm. that, their jobs or responsibilities are done. If we don't, mm. uh, if we or a third party don't reply, don't report those supplier is, uh, is, is not compliant, then their responsibilities are actually done, finished. And our responsibilities right. is. And I guess to- from a technical perspective, contractually, nothing has changed, right? The supplier is still the approved facility. Yes. Even though you know that they're subcontracting. Yes, yes. So in fact, what, uh, the name stayed on the compliant supplier list or the name stayed on the official supplier list is this, is this supplier, but the actual right. production could happen in a totally different facility or location or totally different companies. Yeah. Or factories. And so what happened when you went out to visit that facility? I was, uh, Quite surprised to see the conditions of that uh, subcontract factory is uh, was actually quite good. I mean, it was clean. Right. Uh, everything mm-hmm. is um, organized. Uh, it's it's not a workshop. It's a real factory. Right, but I think then the point to highlight here too is in some cases they're quite good, and in some cases they're not. And and how as a fashion industry do we deal with that right and like because basically like what you said th- this this production facility is invisible and uh from a from a from a contractual perspective they're invisible uh to the brand and so you know if a brand wants to take an active role in ensuring that their production fil- facilities are compliant you know, what's the best approach here? Is it that they should actually also have to go to that subcontracting facility and uh, do an audit? Because like you said, in York, in this particular instance, it was quite a, quite a good, quite a good facility, but in another case, it might not be. Or is it again, coming back to trust? Probably the strongest determining factor that, that drove, that sort of made it likely that this subcontracting facility was compliant was the fact that they had been selected by a supplier in whom you had some trust. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know? Yeah, it's quite interesting. In this case, I would say, I hope or I expect, mm-hmm. let's say I expect brands could deliver some power to their to their compliant suppliers, yes. And this is the meaning of trust. I mean, if you choose these suppliers because of the technique, Mm -hmm. because of the capital, because of the capacity, because of the compliance for so many reasons, then you should deliver Mm -hmm. some power, some decision power to them. Let them decide if they shall outsource some production for their own goods. And if they're willing to take on that risk, right? Yes, after all. Once the contract is signed, <laughs> all the risks are actually on the shoulders of the factories. I'm not saying brands don't mm-hmm. have risks. They have if the production is not finished on time. They definitely has uh, risks. However, factories also have lots of risks. And don't forget the upfront so much cost of money and labor. And right. That they're not going to send their products to somebody who they don't think is going to get them done on time. Especially, yes, exactly. And get them done in the right way. Yes, right? exactly. Because ultimately, if they're exposed... Then, then they will hurt. That will they will they will be the one who bears the consequences. Yes, in a very practical consideration, actually factories they 
do think all these risks because they are the one carries all the risks and not mentioning they already invest so much time, materials and people and uh, all this mm. cost inside. Right. So I, I would expect brands could deliver some decision power to the factories. And I'm not saying mm. all the factories are uh, honest, let's say sometimes in those days, sometimes we don't, we didn't have information actually, but thanks to the culture we set up in the company and uh, thanks to the partnership, both sides eventually mm -hmm. set up, we still could receive information. We couldn't go there to see the production, but we kind of know the production is outsourced or not outsourced. And we mm. kind of know we can more or less believe or trust that factory, the factory who outsourced production, will take uh, care of the, uh, of the quality or will treat quality seriously. Right. So, yeah. And, so and social and social compliance, too. And the social compliance right. too. Yeah. I have to say that because as, uh, you know, factory, uh, in China, factories usually set up in villages or in the suburbs of cities, let's say. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so usually the factory owners or factory management and workers, um, okay. Let me say it this way. Usually the factory management or the factory owners, are the relatives or maybe their families are the villagers already. So they live in the village. So this mm. is also a social part pressure. of the community. Yes, yeah. part of the community. So it's, uh, it's a kind of social pressure that they also care a lot about social compliance and, and their the, reputations. Yes. And reputations within so, the community, which yeah. is in contrast to say somewhere like Cambodia, where a lot of the garment factories in Phnom Penh are not owned by Cambodians, right? Yeah. And they're owned by their foreign companies coming into a foreign country, um, you know, uh, setting up a, a, a workplace in a community, which by definition, they're not part of. And I think, you know, is the conclusion from that, that we should draw from that to say, oh, we should always put factories, you know, in rural places or in, 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 in places where, where the factory management is part of the community, uh, in which it's geographically located? No, not necessarily. I think it just goes to show that, you know, different contexts and different social relationships and ecosystems within which a factory might exist does affect the way you might go about talking or thinking about social responsibility. You know? Yes, yes. It's not uh, as simple as that. For instance, I said many China factories actually set up in the villages and the factory owners or man or management are villagers, uh, part of the community anyway. There are also many big factories they set up far away from nowhere, let's say. So the locals and the factory management or the factory workers, they are not from the same community. Mm. Then the social pressure or the social... Um, uh, how you call that? Yeah, social attachment, let's say, is yeah. much less and much lighter. Then you, it's easier to have some problems. But however, mm -hmm. when we talk about textile in some locations, in some big provinces, they are usually located uh, right there. So when we, when we talk about outsourcing or when we throw out, um, a judgment based on morality or based on those, uh, consciousness, I think we really need to think about the context. So in which context mm. we are discussing those big topics and in which context we could uh, make a judgment. Yeah. Right. Right. Oh, there's so much, there's so, there's, 
yeah, there's just so much food for thought, I think, in your in your in your experience. If my first job experiences makes me realize how important trust it it is, trust mm -hmm. basically is a guideline to help us or protect us when we worked in some gray zones. Mm -hmm. If this is the if this is what I learned from my first experiences, then my second job experiences working as a merchandising manager for brands that makes me realize even more that a uh, trust. Uh, connection or trust relationship can benefit everyone in the loop, actually, not just to protect the factories, but also help the purchasing team and also help mm. benefit the brands in the end. If the brands mm. could allow factories, give some spaces to factories to give their own advices and listen to them, allow them to get involved into the decision making, even just a part of it, it can eventually yeah. benefit brands. Yeah. And I think the key, I think maybe it's like, I'm thinking about this. I might not be very articulate, but I think people ask me, I've, I've received the question a lot, like, well, how do we get trust? And I think the challenge is trust fundamentally involves a certain amount of risk, right? Because trust can always be broken. And yeah. that is like inherent to the very idea of trust is that it can be broken and it's fragile. And so when uh, when we talk about the perception of suppliers as liabilities or we talk about sustainability as a strategy for minimizing risk or we talk about uh, different players within the supply chain seeking ways to minimize their risk, on the one hand, That's understandable and a logical course of action. But on the other hand, it very much is counter to trust. And that doesn't mean being reckless and, and going totally crazy, but it does mean being willing to put your faith in another party and to be open to the consequences that might come with that, you know, and, and what we should focus on perhaps is is putting in place structures that that instead of trying to minimize that risk sort of like give that trust the best chance of succeeding yeah yeah and or of not being broken what you said just to point to a very fundamental question actually that is in my eyes is um top management is the uh, policy maker of a company or mm. a culture company culture maker let's say so What you said, what you mentioned just now, totally related to what kind of environment we want to create in a company. Let's say if a company mm -hmm. focusing on cost effectiveness, uh, then for instance, a brand wants to buy a jacket at $1, the supplier wants to buy, wants to sell the jacket at $1.5. So if the mm -hmm. brand really cares, or let's say only cares about profit and cost, then there's no cooperation, there's no trust because once again is once lose, right? And mm -hmm. if as factory manager or as the management of a company, if the performance is completely linked to the figures, financial figures, mm. then it's very difficult to allow someone else making mistakes. So mm. what I want to say is it's, uh, it's really, there are lots of things brands could do or the top management could do, which is create a more sharing environment called, create a more uh, 
eco environment that the risks or the performance could be could be the risks could be shared and the performance is not only evaluated by financial figures then that mm. may be may cultivate lots of trust yeah mm. yeah big questions and we certainly don't have all the answers but hopefully just starting to articulate the questions will will get will help us to get thinking about well, where do we go from here? Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, check out our website, manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. Leave comments on Instagram or connect with us privately through our website. From June 16, you'll be able to find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. But in the meantime, you can subscribe on our website for the latest episodes. Thanks for listening and see you next week.